Section 19 of The Outline of Science, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Richard. The Outline of Science, Volume 4, by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 36. The Story of Domesticated Animals. Part 2. Section 4. Pigs. Cattle, sheep, and pigs, wherever we wander about the countryside, are always so intimately associated that it is difficult to think of one without thinking of all three, and they have come to us thus linked together from the days of the Stone Age. One can hardly conceive it possible that the domestication of all three began simultaneously. Indeed, the evidence, so far as it goes, seems to show that the pig was the last of the trio to give hostages to man. But it would seem that man lost no time in adding to his responsibilities as a stockkeeper, when once he had appreciated the advantages to be gained by the possession of flocks and herds. How much of this choice was due to intuition, and how much to selection from a number of different animals kept for experiment, we shall never know. But he must have congratulated himself on his subjection of the pig, whose toothsomeness had long been known to him from the flesh of boars, and occasionally sucking pigs slain in the forests. Our domesticated pigs have been derived from two distinct stocks. The wild boar is the ancestor of the northern European breeds, while those of southern Europe, Asia, and Africa have been derived from one of the Malayan pigs, possibly the collared pig, Sus vitatis. It is surely not a matter for surprise that in the course of 10,000 years or so of idleness and domesticity, one should remark a considerable loss both of litheness and intelligence as compared with their wild relations. The boars display a considerable degeneration in regard to the size of their still formidable tusks, while both sexes have developed a great facility for putting on fat and this at the expense of their hairy coats. All wild pigs, when young, have longitudinally striped coats. This is never the case with domesticated pigs, but these have no need of such camouflage. Apart from the transformation due to fat, domesticated pigs have changed chiefly in the great increase in the size of the ears and the very striking shortening of the face seen in breeds like the Middle White Yorkshire and the Berkshire breeds. There is a very remarkable breed of solid-hoofed pigs, in which the two front toes are enclosed in a single sheath. It now chiefly survives in America, where it is cherished under the belief that it is immune to swine fever, though there seems to be no very certain evidence that this is the case. Finally, all domesticated pigs seem to have developed a curious semicircular twist in the tail, for which no explanation has yet been offered. Section 5. Dogs. Those ancient hunters, the Azilians, apparently despised art, but they laid the foundations of tremendous events, the domestication of animals. True, they got no further than the mastery of the dog to aid and abet them in their hunting, perchance because already their game was growing scarce and more wary from constant harassing. But this conquest over wild nature was a great beginning. 
and there can be no doubt but that it had a profound influence over man's future destiny. For 7,000 years, unfortunately, we cannot fix the precise date when the first dog pulled down the first year at his master's bidding. The dog has been the man's most intimate companion and servant. That first dog, we may be almost certain, was a wolf. Later, there is good evidence to show the jackal was in like manner enlisted. From these two stocks, our dogs of today are descended. Bearing this in mind, we shall the more easily appreciate the almost infinite variety which confronts us in any survey of the breed of dogs which the records of the past and of the modern show bench have preserved to us. In using the term wolf, it should be remarked that it includes not only the European wolf, but also the Indian wolf, Canis palaps, and the North American coyote, C. latrans. When immigrants from the east settled down to form the earliest Swiss lake dwellings during the Stone Age, they brought with them dogs derived from the Indian wolf, and these, no doubt, must have hastened the evolution of new types by crossing with the Azilian dogs derived from the European wolf. The desire to raise a strain of dogs for some special purpose, or to satisfy the love of developing more freakishness, has indeed borne fruitful results. Inasmuch as we can now recognize no fewer than six distinct types, the wolf-like group, greyhound group, spaniel group, hound group, mastiff group, and terrier group. Among the wolf group, we have Eskimo dogs, sheep dogs, collies, and the pariah dogs of Eastern Europe, Asia, and Africa. Among the greyhounds, the English and Italian greyhound, deerhound, Irish Wolfhound, and the Great Borzois. The Spaniels include giants like the Newfoundland, and dwarfs like the useless little Pekingese and Japanese Spaniels, as well as the Field and Water Spaniels. Bloodhounds, Staghounds, Foxhounds, Otterhounds, Dachshunds, Pointers, and the Dalmatian Carriagehound represent the hound group, wherein the power of scent is developed in a remarkable degree. A long list of names such as this does not make very entertaining reading, but con it again and reflect that it stands for man's achievements in the manipulation of flesh and blood during some 7,000 years, and it at once assumes a new significance. Read it again, trying to visualize the appearance of these animals. Eskimo dogs, sheep dogs, collies, and pariah dogs. Eskimo dogs trained to draw strange-looking, fur-swathed people in sledges over the snow. Collies and sheepdogs rounding up flocks of silly sheep with a skill surpassing that of man himself. Think of the bond of sympathy between the master and servant. Pariah dogs, outcasts, every man's hand against them, yet contriving to hold their own in spite of buffetings in sun-scorched eastern streets. Look at the lithe and graceful greyhound, kept for no other purpose than to coarse hairs during the chill short days of winter. His forebears, prick-eared but otherwise not very different, were cherished by the ancient Egyptians, embalmed when they died, and portrayed in vivid colors on monuments. To serve the ends of sport alone, man has created, so to speak, an almost bewildering number of breeds, and the behavior of some of these demonstrate a high degree of canine intelligence, as, for example, in the case of the Retriever and the Pointer. 
The St. Bernard, a near relation of the Great Newfoundland, has been assigned another role. His part is to discover and succor the lost in deep snowdrifts on terrible mountain passes, whereat he has won fame imperishable. There are few dogs which do not inspire affection. Many crave it, but there are some which seem to repel us, like the bloodhound. True, man has made him what he is. Terrible to look at and terrible to encounter, man has raised him up to hunt down his fellow man. Hence the poor beast is shunned alike by innocent and guilty, but as a product of man's capacity to guide, if not to control, the evolution of a given type, the bloodhound is really a remarkable animal. Selection in Breeding As a witness to the subtle and subconscious directness of the human mind, the evidence furnished by the domesticated dog is valuable indeed. By careful selection of his breeding stock and shrewd matings, man has, so to speak, inveigled nature to fashion for him just the kind of dog he wanted for a particular purpose. In make and shape and temperament, he has contrived to attain very near to his ideal. And this is as true of the dogs which he has brought into being, as with a magician's wand, to please his fancy for freakishness, as well as of those desired to satisfy his needs. The bulldog of the show bench, which is a modern innovation, well illustrates this point. His prototype, bred for the barbarous and singularly brutal sport of bull-baiting, bore but a slight likeness to the animal known as a bulldog today. This poor creature, heavy-bodied, bow-legged, and underhung, unable to walk a mile, and with defective breathing passages and bad teeth, would have been absolutely useless in the bullring. His only merit today lies in his ugliness. It has taken something like a hundred years to bring this animal to its present state of perfection, and the only useful purpose which can be urged for this expenditure of mental energy on the part of his creators is that it shows what can be done in the direction of evolving new types by persistently breeding from animals which promise to show exaggerations of certain salient features pleasing to the capricious fancy of the devotees of the breed. And what is true of the bulldog is also true of lap dogs, like Pekingese, pug dogs, and the little woolly doormats known as Maltese Terriers. And now a word as to edible dogs. To the Western mind, this sounds a repulsive form of food. Today, the principal dog eaters are the Chinese, who keep the chow chow for this purpose, and the natives of the Society Islands. The natives prefer dog to pork, and if we were to believe Captain Cook, between a South Sea dog and English lamb, there is little to choose. The Eskimos have a fondness for foxes, which the Stone Age people also apparently regarded as a delicacy. Hence, it seems that the taste for dog flesh is a very ancient one. Section 6. Cats. Stone Age man boasted no household, hence he had no cat. For the domesticated cat is before all things a household animal, living idly, and rendering no service for the shelter afforded save catching an occasional mouse for sport. When civilization had, so to speak, got into its stride and man had an abiding resting place and started keeping pets, the cat appeared. When its domestication actually began, we do not know, 
but it had very definitely established itself with the ancient Egyptians of the 20th dynasty, that is to say about 1000 BC. So much so that it had come to be regarded as a sacred animal, and was embalmed at death, as witnessed the mummied cats in the British Museum. Cats are far more stereotyped creatures than dogs. That is to say, they are by nature prone to go on, generation after generation, with an almost machine-like precision in regard to their structural characteristics, and hence they offer no new features upon which the breeder might seize for the development of new types. This much is shown by the fact that after some 3,000 years of domestication, we still have very few distinct breeds of cats. True, there are the tabby and the tortoiseshell, which are nearly always females. Black cats and white cats, long-haired cats, strangely colored Siamese cats, and cats with bobtails. But they are all cast in the same mold, differing only superficially. And this even though descended from several distinct but closely related wild ancestors, of which the Egyptian wildcat may be taken as the type. There is one point about our domesticated cats which is not only extremely interesting, but also very puzzling, and this concerns the pattern of the coat, which presents two quite distinct types. In the one, the head is longitudinally and the body transversely striped, after the fashion of the European wildcat and the Egyptian cat. In the other, the body is marked by broad bands roughly spiral on the flanks. This type represents the true tabby, the word having reference to the well-known pattern of watered silk. Cats of all colors may be thus marked. Even when the two types are crossed, the several members of the litter will present both types, but no suspicion of blending. Some will be striped, and some will be tabbies. No explanation of these very striking differences seems possible. Section 7. Rabbits. We are dealing in these pages not so much with domesticated animals as with the domestication of animals, for this is an outline of science dealing with principles rather than with details. In considering domesticated rabbits, for example, it is a matter of no profit to know the names of all the numerous breeds of these animals. That information concerns the fancier, and even he generally confines his attention to one or two breeds. Rather, we are concerned with these questions. Firstly, why were rabbits and not hares domesticated? And secondly, how is it that the species Lepus cuniculus, the common wild rabbit, has come to be the ancestor of our tame rabbits rather than any one of a number of other species of wild rabbit. More than this, one is tempted to ask how came there to be domesticated rabbits at all? No definite answer can be given to these questions. But we may imagine that when once man discovered the many and great advantages that would follow from his ability to create a permanent supply of beef and mutton by taming wild sheep and oxen, he began to experiment with all kinds of wild species, either because they promised to furnish him with the necessaries of life, or pleasure in the contemplation of beasts and birds kept as pets. He probably experimented with both hares and rabbits, and found the latter were readily amenable to domestication, while hares were not. There is no evidence to show that the domestication of the rabbit is of any very great antiquity, 
yet some very remarkable breeds have been produced, such indeed as could never contrive to exist in a wild state, as for example the lop-eared rabbit. This, in bodily size, far exceeds the ancestral wild rabbit, from which it further differs in the enormous size of its ears, which may measure as much as 28 inches long and 6 inches wide. No wild rabbit could exist, whose ears trailed along the ground with its every movement. The long, woolly-haired angora is another striking transformation of the original wild rabbit, while in point of size, the Flemish giant is equally remarkable a full-grown buck sometimes weighing over 14 pounds. Section 8. Elephants, Camels, and Llamas The domestication of the elephant, camel, and llama support the view already put forward here, that man's choice of domesticated animals has in no small degree been determined by force of circumstances. That is to say, he brought into subjection the most adaptable of the wild animals nearest to his hand. The Indian elephant alone, of the two existing species, has proved amenable to domestication. Even this but seldom breeds in captivity, so that the stock has continually to be replenished by wild-caught animals, which present a most surprising amenability to captivity. Of the two species of camel, one, the Arabian camel, has so long been extinct as a wild animal that we are unable to say with certainty whence the first of the domesticated stock was derived. Of the Bactrian, or two-humped species, it is said that a few wild animals are still to be found in the remote parts of Turkestan. Both species not only breed readily, but they can be freely crossed. Among the Yoruks of Asia Minor, the resultant hybrids, or mules, are preferred to either of the pure breeds. The western side and the southernmost parts of South America harbor some near relations of the camels of the Old World, the llama and the alpaca. These are domesticated breeds of wild species. Up to the time of the Spanish conquest, the Peruvians possessed neither horses, cattle, nor sheep. They were dependent on the llama alone for meat, milk, and clothing, and for beasts of burden, and this beast still continues to fulfill these several needs of their owners, even though domesticated animals, horses, cattle, and sheep have been introduced from Europe. The alpaca is of little use as a transport animal, but it provides a most valuable wool for clothing. Section 9. The Taming of the Birds Turning now from mammals to birds, we find that here also man has made some signal conquests, though it would seem that he did not try his hand at the subjection of the fowls of the air until he had evolved a comparatively stable mode of life. Migration, accompanied by flocks and herds, was not only easy, but necessary. During these peregrinations, however, it would be impossible to transport feathered livestock. Probably the earliest of his experiments was made upon ducks and geese. The mallard then, as now, proved readily amenable to domestication, as also did the grey lag goose. Of the two, however, the mallard has proved the more plastic. This is shown by the fact that it has given rise to a greater variety of breeds, exhibiting a wider diversity of structure, size, and coloration than is the case with the goose. The pigeon was a still later conquest, 
our domesticated pigeons have all been derived from the rock dove, which, in the hands of the fancier, has undergone some really extraordinary transformations, as may be seen on reference to the color plate facing page 1124. Our domesticated game birds are represented by the common fowl, the guinea fowl, the turkey, and the peacock. As with the pigeon, these are all relatively recent additions to man's possessions. The common fowl is a descendant of the Indian jungle fowl, Gallus bankova. Like the blue rock pigeon, this bird has proved to be singularly prone to variation. The number of known breeds, past and present, is positively bewildering. Almost every conceivable change in the matter of coloration and feathering has taken place, while the soft parts, represented by the comb and waddles, have in like manner assumed strange developments. Today, the trend of the breeder is to produce severely utilitarian breeds. His aim is to secure birds with prodigious egg-laying powers, or birds for the table. But there is one fact which has escaped him. His table birds are growing steadily less and less weighty in regard to just that portion of their anatomy which it is most to be desired should on the contrary increase, to wit, the breast muscles. These are the muscles which sustain flight, and as for generations untold, these muscles have ceased to be used. They are in consequence rapidly declining. No amount of selection can remedy this. The only possible hope of stemming this decline is to devise some means of making these birds use their wings. It would be beyond the scope of these pages to pass in review the well-nigh innumerable species of birds which man has succeeded in domesticating more or less completely, for aesthetic reasons, as cage birds. But we may cite the canary as an example, for this bird has now become so transformed that only an ornithological expert could identify it with its wild ancestor. Even its shape, in some breeds, has been changed. End of section 19. Recording by Mark Richard.